Well, we're in a sermon series called Heaven on Earth, and um, the big idea is we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a church that was planted by the Apostle Paul, and it had so much going for it. It had so many great things happening for it. It was fairly vibrant. People were attending the meetings. There were spiritual gifts happening. But at the same time, it was one of the most messed up churches I think in existence, but definitely in the Bible. Probably the most messed up church in the Bible. Um, There were divisions in the church. People were trying to oust the Apostle Paul as their uh, team leader. Um, There were people who thought it was cool to go um, to worship at uh, temples and participate in the worship of of demons that way. There are men who uh, visited prostitutes after church and had theologies for why that was okay. Um, And there was a lot of other things happening that were bad. And we're doing chapter five today. And one of the things about being a church that believes that the Bible is God's word is that eventually you end up having to preach on those passages that everybody else avoids. Right? Um, so Calvary Chapel, if you're newer here, by God's grace, we want to be a Bible-believing, spirit-filled, relational church, among other things. So relational, how come that little break turned into a gigantic family gathering? Because we actually like talking to each other. Um, spirit-filled, at the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to have prayer where we're actually going to be praying like God will do something and asking God to actually lead us as we pray. And Bible-based mean we actually think this whole book is God speaking to us. That God performed a miracle in history and that over a thousand years he crafted a book that is his book to the world that um, authentically reveals who he is, who we are, and what his will for us and plan for us is. But the Bible is full of lots of passages that are profoundly uncomfortable. And so this morning, we're going to be dealing with the passage where the Apostle Paul has to rebuke the Corinthians because they're celebrating a guy who is having an affair with his stepmom. Yuck. But true. But before we get there, I promise that every time we are going to do part of heaven on earth. We're going to read some of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter together. Amen? Amen. All right. Is my clicker? It's not clicked in. Okay. So we have a clicker in the back. Faithful. Okay. So I'm going to read this, and if you would like to read it with me, that would be great. If you don't want to, please be at peace. You can just listen to the word of God read in your presence. Three, two, one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love. I gain nothing. Next slide. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
love for sinners never ends. And I should have taken that last little bit out, but amen. That's a leftover from last week. Okay, so the title of today's message is this. Terrible things happen at church, but you don't have to be part of the problem. Okay, this is the title of the message today. Heaven on earth is God invading the earth by the power of the Spirit with the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised from the dead in order to establish the kingdom of God on earth in the church. We're it. We're heaven on earth. And it's not easy. Anybody? Oh boy, is right. You could get a t-shirt on that and and I'll wear it. Oh boy. And this is one of the realities. When heaven comes down to earth, there's often a mess. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, I keep reminding us of this. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which means make people treat your name as the most holy thing. Make your name awesome. Make your name strong. Make people tremble at the name of the Father. Make people drawn to you. Make it valuable. Make it important. Hallow your name. And then the next thing he said we're supposed to pray is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of you know that when you're asking for someone else's kingdom to come here, you're praying for an invasion? Okay, if you go on the internet and start typing, dear Donald Trump, please invade Canada, you can get arrested for treason. To ask another power to invade your country is treason to that country, right? But sometimes it needs to happen, like in World War II with Nazi Germany, where there was lots of Germans and lots of Jewish people who were praying and asking and pleading that someone would come and invade that country because what's going on there is so bad. Does that make sense? That's that prayer. Father, your kingdom come here because this kingdom needs to be overcome. But whenever you have an invasion, it's a mess. And so heaven on earth is messy. And it's supposed to be great, and it's supposed to be good, and there's supposed to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, and all the stuff that the kingdom of God invading produces, but it's a mess. And we're going to be reading about one of the most uncomfortable messes that happened in the New Testament times. But this is the whole big picture. If we're going to be living in reality, if we're not going to be naive Christians, or immature Christians, or self-centered Christians, or just wanting things to be easy Christians, we need to confess the truth. Terrible things will eventually happen at Calvary Chapel. But, I don't have to be part of the problem. Amen? Anybody? I hear the amens, but not enough. Terrible things, bad things, hard things, painful things, disappointing things will happen at Calvary Chapel. Stick around long enough, I'll ruin your life. (laughs) Unless your life is based on the Lord Jesus Christ completely, and then you'll probably contribute to mine being very difficult if I'm not in that place already and I'm totally off the thread. But the reality is terrible things are going to happen at church, no matter which church you go to. But we don't need to be part of the problem. So, with that being said, I'm going to read to you the Apostle Paul's directions for dealing with a man who is having some sort of affair with his stepmom. And the church 
or at least people in the church, have started to celebrate and support this activity and decision. And a bit of the background is the Apostle Paul planted this church. He was there for about a year and a half preaching, and then he went somewhere else to continue his missions, and somebody has brought a letter to him from the church where they have a bunch of questions. But the messengers who brought the letter to Paul, this is before texting, before um, emails, before any of that stuff. If you wanted to talk to somebody who wasn't in the room, you needed to send a messenger. And so he got the letter, but the messengers who brought the letter said, by the way, there's some stuff happening at the church that aren't in the letter. And so they told Paul about what was going on in the situation here. And here is him responding in a letter back to the church, his response. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ Our Passover over lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I do? What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside Quote, purge the evil person from among you, unquote. Heavenly Father, I invite you to come into our midst here. We need you. I'm not used to preaching stuff like this, and we're not used to hearing about stuff like this, and so we're going to need your grace to come away from this knowing God better. Father, would you do a miracle in our midst and help each one of us submit to the holy word of Jesus. Amen. So I want to tackle this subject by just picking on a few verses here, and I'm not going to be able to get to everything, so please forgive me, but I want to just apply some stuff that I think will capture our situation better. Um, And I want to start by just looking at that line that Paul starts this chapter with, where he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality amongst you. It's actually reported. Okay, so Paul is off in this other city, and people have come to him and reported to him, Paul, you need to know what's going on here, okay? There's this guy, and uh, he's doing this with his stepmom. And I'm assuming that either this guy is an important person or one of this guy's friends is an important person because people have rallied around this situation, which is a very difficult situation to rally around, right? And so the fact that there is a rally around happening means that somebody important 
is promoting this and has found some followers. But who is the one person they didn't want Paul to find out about? Oops, I gave the secret out there. Freudian slip. (laughs) Who's the one person they didn't want to talk to about this? Paul. Paul. (laughs) Because it's not in the letter they sent. Right? It was the, the messengers who reported this. See, I want you to know the answers. So this is what you, we call, or you can call, an open secret. It's a secret that everybody knows about except for the person who probably needs to know about it. A case from the Bible like this is the story of David and Bathsheba. You might remember this. David sees Bathsheba bathing when he's not out to war, but his soldiers are out to war, and he's at home. He sees her bathing, um, gets her pregnant, and then gets her husband killed to cover over the impregnating of his wife while he was gone. And then kind of thinks, everything's fine. I've solved my mess. Nobody knows what's going on, except everybody knows what happened. Because there were these servants that had to go and get Bathsheba, and then there's these servants who had to tell David what happened to Bathsheba, and there's these servants who had to deliver the letter to Joab, and Joab had to get Uriah killed. And Joab is probably talking to other people, you know, sitting there out there fighting these guys, saying, David is, I hate him. Everybody knows what's going on. David thinks he's got this whole thing wrapped up in a bag and he's getting away from it. It's an open secret. Nobody's allowed to talk to David about it, but everybody knows what's going on. It's an open secret until Nathan shows up. There's this story from uh, Roman history about this emperor named Claudius. And Claudius was the emperor, I think, right around when uh, uh, Paul was getting saved. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, which is the greatest empire at that time. And um, he was a bit of a weirdo, though, because he became emperor because his nephew was the emperor, but got assassinated, and then somebody decided he should be emperor, and he was a cripple and had a stutter, and nobody thought he'd amount to anything. And he was a relatively okay emperor, except he had the most terrible marriages of anyone I've heard of. And he was married to this one lady who... um, was totally just out of control with her body. Um, In fact, one time when Claudius was out waging war with England, um, his wife, and I'm sorry for this, but this is true, his wife challenged Rome's most notorious prostitute to a sleeping tournament to see how many people they could be with in one day. And Claudius' wife won. And everybody knew about it but Claudius. The emperor of the world, an open secret. And his wife, and I think her name was Melanius or something like this, um, she only got herself in trouble when one time when Claudius was out visiting some other city, she got married to her lover (laughs) and invited all their friends, the idea being that she would get married to her lover and then kill Claudius, and then she and her lover would be the new emperor and emperor's wife. And at that moment, that's when all of Claudius's friends, who knew what was going on, decided it was finally time to tell him, once his wife had already married somebody else. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> it's an open secret. And what this really pushes down on is that um, there are situations where people have a right to know things. They have a right to know what's going on. Right? And I think in a church, you know, sometimes we, we know that you can hurt people by sharing things people say about them. We don't want to gossip. We don't want to slander. Gossip is when you share stories about people that 
Don't make that person look good because it's enjoyable to share bad stories. Slander is when you share bad stories about people wanting to damage them, and they're usually not true. We don't want to do that stuff, but sometimes we can also not be just telling the truth to people who need to know things. Um, there, there are situations where people have a right to know. For instance, the Canadian government, I think the Canadian government, at least the Manitoban government, has decided that they have a right to know every time there's a child who's in danger of being hurt or abused. And they've passed a law where it is illegal to not say something. So if I or anybody in staff has a situation where they are suspicious, they have good reason to know, think that some child might be being abused, they have a legal ob- obligation to report it, or else you can go to jail. But it's not just us. It's not just teachers. It's not just doctors and nurses. It's like every single person. You have the obligation legally to report if a child is in danger because the government's decided they have the right to know. Did you know that? Okay. In a marriage, most husbands and wives feel like they have a right to know things about each other. How's your fidelity doing? How's the spending of the money doing? How's your spiritual walk doing if you're a Christian couple? Most of us feel like we have a right to know what's really going on because you're so invested, plus you've made this covenant. And we know that the other person can ruin our life. A lot of different ways. Right? Anybody? So it's kind of like, I've entrusted myself to you. You can destroy me. I kind of have a right to know what's going on. Amen? You see this principle here? So the reason I'm talking about this is because when people started telling Paul what was going on in Corinth, he didn't just say, this is just gossip, don't tell me. He didn't just say, this sounds like slander, don't tell me. His response was, yeah, I'm not surprised. And all of you are saying it's happened, so it's not just one witness. You've got a whole bunch of people here saying, yeah, this is happening. And he had a right to know. He's the apostle. He totally has a right to know if the church is destroying the witness of Jesus by what they're celebrating. And so he didn't rebuke them for telling him. He rebuked the people who were doing it. And he doesn't even ask questions. Can somebody tell me what's going on here? He's like, yeah, there's three people. I trust them. I know that they're legit. I believe it's happening. And I know that guy. And he gave me the, the willies the, the whole time he's in church anyway. So rights to know. These are hard things to talk about in churches, aren't they? I think in most churches, Paul wouldn't have found out what was going on because most people would have just said, I don't want to be a snitch and I don't want to be accused and I don't want to get in trouble and I don't want anybody to get mad at me. But this is the issue. is somebody who's responsible for taking care of the church, not hearing that something terrible is happening at the church. Right? Wouldn't you want to know if your kids are doing terrible at school? But sometimes the school says, we're not going to tell you. And they're sinning against a parent's right to know what's really happening in their kids. We're the one who loves them. We're the one who gave birth to them. We're the one who gives them a place to sleep and food to eat. We have a right to know. Does that make sense? So this is always the question. If, I'm, if I've got something, if, 
am I, if I'm going to talk about it, is it something that's going to grieve the Holy Spirit or please the Holy Spirit? And is there somebody who needs to know what's going on here? Um, you know, I think ways that people can fall down here is, you know, you can have a friend and they're cheating on their spouse and you just won't talk about it. Maybe, and you're not in a position where it's like you've covenanted to keep secrets like some sort of official or professional role. But if you went to their wedding and you heard them say publicly, I covenant not to do what I'm doing, then you haven't ever covenanted to keep their secrets for them. So for instance, okay, so years ago, um, a worship leader lady who's the husband or wife, sorry, of um, a pastor was saying she ended up in this kind of position because a worship leader from another church was began to confide in her that she was having an affair with the worship leader who wasn't her husband. And her response was, okay, thanks for sharing that. You have two weeks to let me know that you've talked to your pastor about this, and if not, I will. And the lady got upset. That's not what she wanted. I don't want to deal with this. I just want to get this off my chest. It's like, well, we're Christians. And you know that you, your obligation was to walk in purity. And you know your obligation is to walk in the light about what you're doing. Both to your husband and to your church. Because when you're in church leadership, everybody <laughs> assumes that you're not doing that stuff. And plus, we talk about it. We know. Like, if there's an affair happening in leadership, aren't you all hurt? Isn't all your faith hurt? Don't you just think, I can't trust anybody? Okay, if we know that's what it is, then we don't keep those secrets. We deal with them in love. Because we all know we have a right to know. Amen? And I know it's heavy, but like I seriously stood here eight years ago and made a solemn covenant to the Lord to do everything I could for the good of the church. Which includes like telling the elders every bad thing I do. And they know most of it because I do most of my bad stuff right in front of them. (laughs) And then I repent. We talk about the plans to not do it again. Because that's the Christian life. I have zero expectation for any of you to be perfect. This much. I do expect us to keep turning to the Lord, and walking in the light, dealing with our junk. And we all know as Christians that we've, by saying yes to Jesus, we've committed to doing that much. Amen? Amen. We know that. All right. Open secrets and the right to know. You know what? If you're motivated by love and trying to please the Holy Spirit, you'll probably get it right. Let's talk about this part. Your boasting is not good. How do you end up in a situation where incest is being celebrated? (laughs) I don't know. Publicly. He actually has to tell them, stop boasting about this guy who's having his father's wife. And I think I know how you can get there. 
There is a type of freedom that people can want that is the freedom of rejecting other people's expectations and standards for your life. The freedom of rejecting what society has planned for you. The freedom of rejecting what the church wants. The freedom of rejecting what the authorities want or the government wants. There's this feeling of freedom that comes with being rebellious. Right? Anybody ever notice that? A little bit? You've been there? You've heard about people. I minister to people who struggle with these things. There is this sense that rebellion can be fun, right? And so here's a guy and a church who are, who are going for the Hail Mary 90-yard touchdown in this. Because they know even the pagans don't put up with this stuff. And here's somebody who said, I don't care what the Christians think or the pagans think. I'm going to do me. And there's a group of people around them going, what a, what, a, what a courageous person. Nobody tells them what to do. Blah. Now, all that being said, we've been talking about this philosophy called existentialism which I'm calling meism, this idea that there is no God and there is no right and wrong and there is no truth and there is no real you until you decided who you are and what God is and what is right and wrong for you and what your mission is in life. Remember, this is this idea and we've been talking about it for a while. And it was popularized recently by this philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre and he had a wife named Simone de Beauvoir, I think was her name. And their their big message was there is no God, but you can decide right and wrong, and then you decide what you need to do in order to accomplish your goal for your life. Now, they didn't totally know it while he was alive, but after he, he died, he and his um, mistress, what do we call her, um, their private correspondences were produced. So they write, write letters to each other, and it turned out that part of them becoming the individuals they wanted to be and pushing back against the Catholic culture in the France that they lived in and pushing back against the, the morals in the world so that they could determine their own life and decide that nobody could tell them what to do was to engage in sexual immorality. And so they refused to marry as a little to marriage because marriage is a covenant where you commit yourself to somebody else. And their philosophy was nobody tells me who I am. I don't make commitments to people and I don't do that. I decide who I am. And every Every moment of the day. And they purposefully also had um, sexual relationships with people outside of their own relationship as a way to try to like kill in themselves the regular feelings of loyalty, fidelity, and jealousy for each other. They would have affairs just to say, to stick it to that part of us that knows you're supposed to be faithful. And it, it turns out that he actually is kind of like a Jeffrey Epstein type uh, person because he would purposefully seek out teenage girls and make it his own mission. There's this one story where he tried to seduce this young woman for over a year, and when he finally achieved his goal, he left her, he said, quote, crying in the bed because the point was not that he wanted her at all. He just wanted to assert his self by overcoming this, this young woman who didn't want him. And Simone was somewhat similar um, as an essayist and thinker. She was a bit of a fan of this guy named um, 
the Marquis de Sade, which is the person where we get the word sadist from, and he was a thinker from 150 years before they lived, who thought, you know, if you're really going to assert yourself in life, you, the only way you know that you are asserting yourself is if you're in, capable of inflicting pain on people who don't want you to do that. Like, how do you know you're actually in control and powerful in your life unless you can hurt people? And he was kind of crazy and got locked up a lot, but she was a fan of his because he didn't let anybody tell him right and wrong. And they don't tell you this stuff when you get influenced by their ideas. When they say, your life is all about you and you make it up and you decide what's right and wrong for you and you just need to decide what you want and don't let anybody stop you from getting that. They don't tell you that these people were child abusers and were purposefully destroying every kind of natural affection and natural loyalty that people have because we're made in the image of God. They were out for super fun rebellion. If you're going to live your life seeking to destroy every kind of societal mores or limit that people have on you, eventually you're going to have to support incest because that is the most deeply rooted that is in human beings. That's the line everybody knows. You don't do that. And if somebody's going to be a real rebel, that's where they're going to have to eventually support if I'm living just for myself, I need to help support other people living just for themselves. And if I believe you have a barrier, then I believe I have a barrier and I don't want to have any barriers. Yikes. Do you know what the opposite of this is? Love is patient. Love is kind does not envy, it does not boast, it is not self-seeking, it doesn't rejoice in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We've been reading it every week. The opposite of being selfish is to follow Jesus and love people. The way God describes. And so let's start swinging into the end here. Look, I, I know this is hard, and this isn't fun, but you know, I'm just... I exist to help people deal with reality. You might disagree that I'm doing that, but this is my mission. I believe I exist to help people deal with the realities of life. Both the reality of God and his existence and Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the reality of human sin and corruption and what your life is really like. And we can say, I don't want to hear about this stuff at church. That's fine. I'm with you. But I also don't want to read stories about uh, Manitoba teachers going to jail because they groom children for abuse, which I read about in the last month or two. And I don't want to read stories about some guy on a motorcycle getting killed on a highway just north of here because somebody thought it'd be cool to drive drunk. There's a lot about life I don't like. But that young guy's still dead. Even if I don't like it. And this guy slept with his stepmom, even though we don't want to hear about it. Now, this is why I love Paul. Paul's just like, I could just ignore this. I'm not in Corinth. I'm weeks away. I can just pray. Maybe put out a vague blog post. Maybe have a special message for Mother's Day. 
that talks about limitations. But instead, look, instead he absolutely drops the nuke on this church. This guy's excommunicated before the letter's over. So let's talk about that. I think that most Christians at some time in their life live in fear of being excommunicated from their church. Is it just me? (laughs) And the words church discipline send a shiver down your spine. Nobody wants to get exposed. Nobody wants to get rejected. Nobody wants to get hurt. But we know we do bad things. What do we do? Technically, church discipline usually involves uh, something like saying you can't have communion with us. That's what excommunication means. It means you're away from communion. Excommunication. You can't take communion, which is a small deal and a big deal. Okay, It's a small deal because you're not going to jail. It's a small deal because you're not um, getting beaten up. It's a small jail, and a lot of the ways punishment can happen in the world, it's not happening. But it's a big deal because our communion table it means that we're connected with Jesus and we're going to live forever. And so if you're shut away from the communion table, it's symbolically saying you're not going to heaven. Because no matter what you've said, your life says you're not a believer. Okay, That's what excommunication is. It's the church leadership and the church saying, we love you, but there, there isn't anything about this that says that you believe in Jesus. And so we're letting you know that's where we're at. You know, if you can't find anybody who knows you that thinks you're a Christian, there's a problem. Yeah? So that's what excommunication is, and that's what Paul is doing. And so I just want to read this one line from verse 4 and 5, where it says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so something like this, or maybe an after-service meeting, and my spirit is present, meaning that they're reading Paul's letter, and his authority is there, and the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that's in Paul, is in this church. With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is Paul's motivation for having the church reject what this guy is doing with his stepmom? It's right there. That his spirit may be saved. Okay. So who is the only person at this church who actually loved this guy? Who is the only person in this gigantic church where this guy was surrounded with people doing the fingers back clap at his bravery and his strength and his fierceness and his uncontrolled by societal norms? They're doing this. Who is actually the only person who cared about this guy's soul? The guy leading the excommunication. Do we have places in our brains and our hearts for this kind of person? I don't think so. Canadian Christians don't know people like this. This is where I read this and I go, I'm a failure as a pastor. And that's when the church goes, oh no, he's going to try to not be a failure. (laughs) But when I read this, I think, my golly, I do not care about people's souls. And Jesus said, that's all that matters about you. What if you gained the whole world, but you forfeited your soul? What if you gained? What if you gained all the money and all the praise and all the technology and everybody in the whole world kissed your feet? What if you gained if you lose your soul? Zip, zero, nothing. All you've gained is the wrath of God. That's all that matters about us is our souls. 
Christian, that's all that matters about us is our souls before God. Nothing else matters. Eternity is a long time, and hell is real. And heaven is real too. I know people write books. <laughs> I know people write books, but they do not care about people's souls. They care about their feelings today. They just want you to be okay. They want you to feel comfortable when a loved one dies, having rejected Jesus. That's all they want. And here's Paul, a million miles away from this church, going, won't you you just treat him like he's going to hell? But then I just remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy where he says, oh guys, I've got to read it. These are verses that haunt me for my good. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with change as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's Paul in prison. Probably got beaten again recently, and he's like, I need to endure so that the elect make it. I need to persevere in the faith so that Christians don't quit on Jesus. Amen? And Paul's saying that about himself so that Timothy will think that about himself so that Christians who read this will know this about themselves. Other people's souls, they matter a lot. I need to be faithful to Jesus. Amen? So I'm, we're going to worship in a sec. Greg and I were working this morning trying to figure out where you go after this topic. But I think I'm going to pray that Jesus will, will fill us full of his love for people. So that maybe we would become as brave as Paul in the treasuring of souls. Amen? So do you want to lead us? And You can sit, you can stand. This is going to be my prayer. Father, I just want to confess, it is true, Lord, I have been so hesitant to just see the world as souls who know God or don't. But God, I pray that you would so change our hearts together that we would see what you see. Father, your love expressed itself by sending your son to die for us so that you could save souls who would be lost forever and be worthy of your wrath forever. And you said yes to your son's humiliation. You said yes to his betrayal. You said yes to him having his true words rejected every day. 
You said yes to his torture. You said yes to his mocking. You said yes to his agony. You said yes to him being publicly rejected by you by having the sun be turned out as he truly was treated as a sinner before you. And now by faith in Jesus, we get to wake up into a morning where God does not hate us. Where our lives are precious to the Father. Where he's promised to be with us every single day to give us what we need to walk with him and his Son. Where our souls are no longer alone inside of our bodies because the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us to be our friend and comforter and guide and power. God, this is impossible. God, I pray you take these truths and, and move me out of a, t- a way where I just, I just use these for my own encouragement and I pray that you'd use them in a way that, that I and we together would be inflamed for the souls of people who do not have this. Father, I pray that you would do something so miraculous. I don't care what Canada's like. I don't care what the evangelical church is like. Would you do something for the glory of Jesus? I care what Jesus is like. Would you do something to inflame your church with a love for souls and their minds and their bodies, the whole deal, but their eternities weighing on us, upheld by the love of Christ. We worship you.